Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well... That's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. All right. How are you? Welcome to The Other People Show. I'm Brad Listy. I have uh, a bit of a cold. I don't know if you can hear it, so if I sound like I'm uh, under the weather, I kind of am. But that is not stopping me from delivering to you a Sunday episode, and I am very delighted to have Julie Poole on the program. She is a poet who is originally from the Pacific Northwest, but now lives in Austin, Texas. She has a new collection out on Deep Vellum. It is called Bright Specimen, and it was inspired by the time that she spent in the uh, Billy L. Turner Plant Resources Center at the University of Texas at Austin. It's very much about plants, among other things. Julie Poole has received uh, fellowship support from the James Mishner Center, the Helene, uh, Helene Wurlitzer Foundation, and Yado. And in 2017, she was a finalist for the Keen Prize for Literature. I had a nice time talking with her. That is coming up in just a minute. I do have a quick announcement. If you are... Uh, a journalist or a literary critic or a book blogger or a literary podcaster, and you would like a uh, advanced copy of my novel, Be Brief and Tell Them Everything, please uh, email me at letters at otherppl.com. That's letters at otherppl.com, and I will put you on the list for a galley. Uh, my book comes out in May 2022, so we're getting uh, galleys together and all the rest. Today's episode is brought to you by Grey Wolf Press, publisher of The Swank Hotel, the new novel by Lucy Corin. Book list says, quote, Corin's novel unveils the madness that permeates society by scrutinizing trauma, cultural expectations, and the political and economic climate of the 21st century. That's The Swank Hotel by Lucy Corin, available now from Grey Wolf Press. Hey, everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, 
I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. So I'm going to have Julie Poole read a poem to you before we get started with the interview. I do this with poets, as most of you probably know. This poem is called Iris Tenusima. It is from Julie's collection, Bright Specimen, available now from Deep Vellum. Here is Julie Poole. Iris started in a strange shell. Tell me what's inside the package with the hairline crack. Is it corn? Is it edible? A flower or a tiny red apple? If I was as strong as this long green leaf painted over, ridged, remarkable in length, strong enough to stand erect, green, a perfect idea. When I see it, it's nearly as familiar as my mother's skin. The first leaf I touched with my baby hand, making contact, marking the sense of touch in my memory, grasses of many textures, some sharp enough to cut, some soft enough to taste the roots of. Yes, when I was young, I put grass in my body. I pulled the young shoots out and ate their water-ripe tips. There was a faint squeak when I pulled the blade away from its roost. Okay, that is Julie Poole reading a poem entitled Iris Tenusima from her collection Bright Specimen, available now from Deep Vellum Press. Very pleased to share my conversation with Julie with you right now. Had a lot of fun mating her and uh, enjoyed this collection. So here we go. This is Julie Poole and her new collection, One More Time, is called Bright specimen. I started this book and I didn't really realize that this would become a book at all. It just 
started as a, you know, passion project. And I was like, oh, I'm going to write about flowers. <laughs> I'm going to encounter beauty. And I thought that that was what interested me about flowers and especially pressed flowers. And I was uh, the Billy L. Turner Plant Resources Center has over a million specimens. So I thought in a dreamy sort of way that I might be able to stumble upon possibly one of the most beautiful plants in the world. You know, who knows? <laughs> um, so I looked at many, many specimens. Um, but violence became a theme that I noticed pretty early on. Um, in fact, like maybe even day two, just because I was working uh, at UT, University of Texas at Austin, in the main tower. Um, and the tower was uh, a setting where one of the first mass school shootings occurred. So my desk was... I would say a few feet away from the stairwell that Charles Whitman climbed um, to the top of in 1966 and uh, took the lives of innocent people. So I felt like I felt like the building carried that sense of trauma still. And the more I looked at plants, the more I realized that I also carried a sense of trauma within myself, with, especially within my body, and that I was hiding from that. And I was looking for some activity to distract me from that bodily feeling of violence and reliving trauma. Hmm. And the trauma that you were hiding from and that was kind of living in your body was uh, the a hospitalization th that um, you suffered through uh, or in an earlier part of your life? Is that correct? You write about it in the afterwards, so. Yeah, yeah. So I was 34 when I, uh, actually, no, I was 33. I turned 34 when, when I was in the hospital. I was there for almost a month. But I was involuntarily hospitalized. I went through... Uh, like a medication shift and I stopped taking meds altogether and just something in my brain just kind of <laughs> went haywire and I became very disconnected with reality. Um, and yeah, involuntary commitment is, is really not a fun process. It's just, you know, you're, I didn't want to go to the hospital. I um, I had been hospitalized three times before I turned 18 as a teenager. For, and, for bipolar? Well, at the time, I was, I was diagnosed with clinical depression, and I was always like one of those kids who really struggled with depression. And um, I had, you know, a lot of self-harm tendencies and... Um, I would say that I never wanted to take my life, 
but I did feel like I was testing those boundaries and I, I was testing the people I loved in my life to kind of maybe take care of me and like realize that I was in a lot of pain. So those experiences in my formative years of being on psych wards as a kid, when I was a kid, I was just a teenager. They didn't have room for me in like the adolescent or children's ward. (laughs) So I was put on wards that with adults and that was an interesting experience as a teenager um, being in this atmosphere where, you know, I was just incredibly sick and surrounded by people who were also really struggling too. Um, but yeah, so I think that that's something that this book has really allowed me to talk about more and realize that it's been a part of my life. Um, and yeah, I, I still struggle with my diagnosis. I'm, I don't know if I'll ever reach that point where I'm just like, yeah, I fully embrace this because a lot of uh, my experience of mental illness has had environmental triggers, you know, just having a, <laughs> a, turbulent home life and not having my needs met, not having enough food, not feeling safe, not feeling like my mother was protected, feeling in constant danger. Um, So I acted out in a way um, maybe to bring attention to this problem that my family was facing. And that problem had to do with you know, my stepfather, who was um, a pretty troubled individual. And you uh, but, you allude briefly um, as well to the loss of your father when you were 11. So th- yeah. this too is, I would imagine, is a part of um, the trauma that lives within you. How can the loss of a parent not be traumatic to us, right? Yeah. You know, it is. It's interesting. Like when I look at other poets, it's kind of uncanny how many poets have lost a parent. Um, Sylvia Plath, I think, was like 10 or 11 when she lost her dad. Um, And my dad died of a brain tumor. He had brain cancer. And my mom um, remarried a few months later. So I didn't really have enough time to process that he was gone uh, because uh, she found someone pretty quickly and we moved right away. We moved from the house that I grew up in. Oh, that's tough. (laughs) That's tough though, right? Because I mean, it's it's like a, it's tough to, I think it's tough for children. It's tough for adults, but it's tough for kids to, to move out of their familiar environment in any, in any context, but to have that like up against the loss of your father had to be especially difficult. Yeah. You know, it was, um, it was, and I think that, you know, my mom 
didn't know how to be a parent alone. She was raised in a family like um, where she wasn't even allowed to learn how to drive because, you know, she was a woman. And it was expected that she get married right away. In fact, she was engaged um, when she was in high school to my dad, who was, I think, like eight years older. She's still a teenager. And she tells me that in her yearbook, her classmates had written about her that she was the most likely to get married (laughs) Um, because she was engaged. And I just find that so fascinating because my mom was, she is so much more than that. You know, she's an artist. She's an incredible person. But she grew up in a Catholic family. She had seven siblings. There was really no such thing as, like, a woman working or having a career or going to college. So that never even was an option for her. So when my dad died, I think she was just terrified of not having this nuclear family. And man, um, when I walked in and I met my new quote unquote stepfather, I was blown away. Um, by the difference, um, even in their stature. Um, my dad was kind of a petite guy. He was like 5'8", and uh, very soft-spoken, just such a gentle human being and really funny. And my stepdad, like one of my first encounters was him like, trying on my father's coat and the sleeves being really too short and him saying like, oh man, this guy was tiny and me just like, oh, just wanting to (laughs) rip this man to shreds for like calling my dad a little guy. Um, And for wearing his coat, you know, it's just, it was brutal. It was brutal to see that. Yeah, that's a, that's a strange opening move. That's immediately a red flag (laughs) for me when the stepfather tries on the recently deceased father's coat in front of his new stepdaughter, like as like a, a way of saying hello. Well, and then he pawned it. So he pawned my dad's coat, which was like a leather coat, um, and he used it for, for drugs. Um, so my mom woke up to this reality that she didn't really know who she was marrying. Um, it's almost comical in a way because my stepfather like installed our fake fireplace. <laughs> and I was already like, this is so weird. Like, my mom had just met this man and he's installing our fireplace. And then I come home and she's like, I'm getting married. And I'm like, Oh, wow. (laughs) (laughs) 
What do you say? I mean, how you're 11 years old, right? What do you say? But the funny thing is, is that I felt like, you know, my mom and I were really close. And I felt like when my father died that I had in a way become him. And that's not uncommon, you know, especially because I was the oldest kid. And I wasn't there when he died, but I held his hand while he was in a coma. And, um, and well, actually, more correctly, he held my hand and he started squeezing my hand and it started to hurt, but I didn't want to show that I was in pain. And and then the nurses noticed that he was squeezing my hand really hard in a way that was probably some sort of reflex. Um, so they had to peel his hand off of my hand. <laughs> and he's still supposed to be in this coma. So he's having like some sort of recognition. Um, and I felt his life like kind of enter my own at that point. So, yeah. <laughs> That's wild. That's what I mean. And, and not, that doesn't sound crazy to me. That sounds, uh, I mean, cause you are him. You're made yes. of him. I mean, there is, there yeah. is, there is no separation between, uh, the two of you when you really get down into it. Um, absolutely. And I think there are many documented cases of people being in comas, especially I think when a child is there, uh, I think of my grandmother who, um, in her final years had dementia and, um, one of her children was uh, severely mentally disabled, her youngest, and she was gone. Like my dad would go mm -hmm. in and he would say, and she barely recognized him at all. Uh, but then my uncle Brian would go in and she would suddenly come back online. <laughs> it was wild because yeah. she, you know, and, and it was really touching to see like, like she would suddenly look up and like take his hand, say his name, you know, like it, it's, it's a little bit of mysterious how it all works, but the fact that your presence and probably your voice, I would imagine you were talking a little bit, you know, as you were there. Um, because they say that auditory sense is one of the last to go, right? If somebody's not conscious, they can often still hear or if they're not. Wow. Yeah. So maybe he heard and then I don't know who knows, but it, it, uh, it's, it squares with what I've like read and heard through the years about people, um, in the final stages of life and like mm -hmm. what they're aware of, you know, and then just that deep connectivity. Um, and also what yeah. a what a powerful and kind of scary and sad experience for you as a child, like how heartbreaking. Yeah, I think, you know, I, I love that I got to know someone like that. Um, and it's, it's strange because, you know, when you're, I knew that my dad kind of wanted boys, <laughs> Like I sensed that, like he had three girls and I think that, you know, like he would take us fishing or we'd play baseball or he'd try to teach me how to play basketball. And, um, so yeah, I think that, uh, I always sensed that, you know, like 
maybe he would have preferred a son but then he, he at some point he shifted and was like oh having daughters is actually the coolest thing and um we we you know like we interacted on a, a different level um but i don't think that i would have under if i didn't have my dad has that sort of role model of who a man could be i think that i might have encountered my stepfather and thought well this is just how all men are and so i'm so grateful that i had you know someone to look up to until the age of 11 and you know uh be kind of in awe of um uh yeah <laughs> well no that's i mean it's a it's a huge blessing to have loving parents you know not everybody does yeah. not everybody does and when you don't it's a it's a difficult road to say the least and you know the thing you said earlier about a lot of poets having lost a parent i think of like poet friends of mine and maybe like the poet friend of mine who embodies my idea of what it means to be a poet the most you know like there's something very pure and true about him he lost his little sister uh mm -hmm. to leukemia when he was a kid so not the loss of a parent but you know lost a sister and suffered through um stepfather abuse uh as yeah. well so interesting parallels uh, i think you know i guess it makes a kind of obvious sense that having to go through really tough stuff at any stage of life, but maybe especially when you're a kid, can't help but deepen you in some ways. It forces you to, it forces your hand. You have to grow through it. Um, I mean, the alternative is what, you know? Uh, yeah. So you have the loss of your father, the difficulty of living with this abusive, it sounds like an addict stepfather. <laughs> um, and then the resulting mental illness or psycholo mm -hmm. psychological issues. And, you know, you brought up a really interesting point. It's something I've wondered at myself through the years, this kind of nature nurture question around, um, you know, depression, uh, as just yeah. a one example, you know, doctors may hand out diagnoses based on one's condition, not always taking into account the life experiences one has been through or the environment one lives in. And maybe, especially in Western medicine, um, in that paradigm, they might have a tendency to overcorrect in the direction of neurochemistry uh, and biology and not give much credence to the fact that, oh, you know, this young person lost a parent this young person's mm -hmm. in a in an unsafe household you know like um yeah and i guess i mean it, it sounds like maybe that was the case for you especially when it comes to um hospitalization yeah you know and i grew up in the 80s and uh so i started really i <laughs> i was medicated in the 90s and you know that's that I remember like this is like when psych meds are actually pretty new in terms of like giving them to kids and stuff. And 
I don't think that there was really that research there yet um, that showed what happens to a developing brain that's on, you know, a lot of medications. And later on, like, there are clear warnings now on a lot of, you know, medications that if you give them to minors, it can cause suicidal ideation. So, you know, part of me wonders, like, how much of that was the result of, I don't know how to say this, like, being a kind of a guinea pig for, (laughs) for like, uh, for, for meds. I don't know. Like I, I, it's very controversial. It's a very uh, sticky subject. And I know that my doctors did the best that they could, but I do also remember like things that came up that were really quite shocking. It, when I think about them now, especially like, my psychiatrist recommending like if I didn't get better to have electroconvulsive therapy and they've shown that you know when you give electroconvulsive therapy to to kids it can or even adults it can cause long-term memory damage right yeah I I remember reading about that I'm trying to think of Maybe it was I was reading like a biography of Ernest Hemingway. I want to say he was treated with that. But that was kind of common treatment, I think, in mid-20th century uh, American yeah. American medicine for people who were dealing with severe depression or severe yes. know, mental illness. Yeah. So, yeah, it, it is interesting. I, I I do wonder, like, what would have happened if I just would have been able to express what I was feeling and been given some coping skills maybe, you know, cause that's really all I've wanted in life, even as an adult to like figure out how to navigate having an illness and living a healthy life. You know, I think like everyone wants that. Everyone wants to live a healthy life. I mean, part of the reason I wrote this book is I was in, it's like in a weird, like numb pain. I didn't really feel anything. And I was like, I can't meditate. Why? <laughs> I'm like, try. Well, I, you know, like, I want to believe that meditation, and I've been told that meditation has, you know, very positive effects. But for me, like, sitting with my thoughts for even 10 minutes is dangerous sometimes. And, and trying to get to that place of quiet. And so part of my process in looking at these plants, like looking at these broad side sheets of plants, um, 20, 30 plants a day, was an act of meditation. It was an act of like putting myself in a meditative mindset that allowed me to surrender those harmful, negative scary thoughts that I was having and focus on something um, so much so that I was looking at it at through 
I was looking at the plants, not only like directly looking at them, but I was looking at them through a magnifier um, that had this light on it. And so I could see every detail, every like the smallest details in a petal, uh, the stems. And I was just in awe. It was like going to MoMA <laughs> in a way, like going to an art museum and seeing something and saying, oh, this is the coolest sculpture I've ever seen. Or this, I've never seen a color like this before. Or I've never seen a texture like this before. And having that image be uh, the focus of everything. Uh, and just the incredible amount of feeling that came from that. I'm, I'm looking at something that's supposedly dead. And I know it's like, it's not alive anymore. It's been uprooted. Some of these plants are like hundreds of years old. How, how do they preserve them? How do, like, how do they stay like, you know, in any kind of shape to be even looked at if they're hundreds of years old? Well, that's a great question. Sometimes um, uh, there was a chemical process that was used and sometimes not. You know, it depends on whether or not um, plants are vascular plants or I, I'm sorry, I'm not a botanist. I'm probably screwing this up. But say, say for instance, an orchid, um, an orchid isn't going to preserve as well as a plant that's a vascular plant like a pansy. Um, orchids are very delicate and um, uh, hard to preserve. Um, but they're basically just on sheets of paper and they dry out. A lot of them lose, you know, a lot of the color. They're not as vibrant. Some of them are incredibly vibrant. Um, plants from the tropics, for instance, it's just incredible. You could look at a plant from South America and just like it'll blow your mind. But they're on these big sheets of paper laid flat and then they're put in folders um, and then stored in these kind of like hermetically sealed um, cabinets. And the, the cabinets are supposed to ideally <laughs> keep out bugs. They're dark. It's like you don't want light on the plants. You want them don't want an overexposure of air like the biggest danger in an herbarium is water damage and bugs like a bug infestation or obviously fire um so yeah they're incredibly delicate and when i had to move them i had to move them you we would never turn it like a a page of a book that would obviously be really stupid you have to lift each document up and move it aside and then set it down so I was so incredibly lucky that the curator trusted me to do this because number one I'm not a scientist I'm not a botanist I'm I'm a stinking poet you know and <laughs> who knows what kind of drugs I'm on <laughs> and so it's like and it was just an incredible experience that uh, they trusted me 
to take on this project. And they welcomed me into this space, which was like very quiet. It was like working in a library. I basically got the perfect office for myself and this project to work on. And each week I'd come in and I'd say, well, I'd really like to look at um, Snapdragons today. And uh, George Yatskovich, he's the curator. He's a he's a doctor, <laughs> doctor botanist, um, brilliant individual. I, I think he's probably the smartest person I've ever met. When he would talk to me about plants, I'd be like, "Yes, I understand absolutely nothing you're saying right now." <laughs> he was incapable of. Uh, putting anything in kind in in like layman's terms, which I so appreciated. It was so lovely, like everything, like the Latin names, like um, the very like the scientific language that he would tell me about. Um, he was really like trying to teach me, and a lot of it, some of it stuck with me, and some of it didn't unfortunately um i can relate to that you know i don't <laughs> i would have been at a loss yeah but he was just so incredibly kind and part of it was like i just made a list of plants i was like and a lot of them had something to do with like some sort of stage in my life uh like snapdragons have kind of a sentimental association for me like i used to take them and you could pinch the corners of their of the flower and kind of make them talk, you know, I don't know if you ever did that when you were a kid, you know, like make a snapdragon talk. I don't think the way I, I grew up in the Midwest Do we have snapdragons in the Midwest. I don't even know. So yeah, snapdragons are fun because they look like, they look like they have tongues and they look like they have mouths and you could be like, I'm a dragon, <laughs> you know, they're just the coolest things. And so I remember doing that as a kid and I wanted to look at them and uh, look at a lot of them and just kind of meditate on uh, that experience. Okay, um, I need to stop you here because I think, I think there's an interesting point to make, maybe like a, a dissonance between what you said earlier about not being able to meditate and to sit with your thoughts because it can be dangerous. Mm -hmm. uh, I get that. Uh, I actually have a friend who is diagnosed as bipolar who told me much the same. Like meditation is intolerable to him. For mm -hmm. I, I think that reason, because the voice, the jabbering, the static is just too loud and maybe too dark or something. Um, mm -hmm. But everything that you're describing to me and you keep saying the word meditative or meditation. I mean, to sit in an herbarium in a quiet room for hours on end, looking at the granular detail of plant after plant after plant and finding a sense of deep peace in that, that that's every bit as much meditation to me as sitting on a cushion and observing one's thoughts. It's just a different mode, right? Yeah, thank you. I mean, I, I, I feel that strongly. I feel like um, 
you know, one of the biggest influences in my work is the work of John Berger, who wrote um, Ways of Seeing. You know, he wrote about art history and how important it is to look at art and to look at art incredibly closely and, and in, like with with an eye for detail. And that just seems so important to me. And in doing so, and like look at looking at something and focusing on it, um, you do feel a sense of time lifting, um, but also a sense of connection too, which ideally that is what like loving kindness meditation would give someone is like a sense of connection to all beings. And I, you know, I would love to get to a state where, you know, I can meditate because I do think it's a very healthy practice. I just couldn't do it at that time. And I, during the pandemic, I haven't been able to, um, but I can, observe things up close and pay attention and I'm so grateful for that (laughs) I'm so grateful for that ability to trust myself and to pay attention in some way because I started this project like right after in 2017 I was still in shock over the result of the elections. I was in shock over a loss of a friend. I was like in shock over so many different things in my life. And then on top of all of this, I was remembering what had happened to me while I was in the hospital. And I found this space that felt both safe, but at the same time, like the space was still hurting from the trauma that (laughs) I don't know if that sounds nutty. No, it doesn't. You Uh, mean the the, the trauma of the the shooting in the tower? Yes. Yes. Because I think that I think, you know, I'm perfectly willing to go with you on this notion that a physical space can be inhabited by like, for lack of a better way of putting it, the ghosts of its past and that like a certain energy can linger in a space for good or for ill. Cause like, mm-hmm. I think we've all had that, uh, experience of like walking into a beautiful building or into a beautiful space or into a beautiful setting in nature. Um, and having a, just a sense of its energy and mm-hmm. how could you be anywhere near that tower and have any knowledge of its history? And not have some sense of the the dark energies and the sadness that lived in there, right? I mean, that's, I don't know. That doesn't feel too far afield for me. Okay. Yeah, that's good. <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, it's so funny because, you know, I think like, I'm thinking of myself more in terms of, you know, as a human species, we are soaking up our environment. We are sensitive to our environment. And there are some people who are more sensitive than others. And I think that as much as I 
really resisted this for a long time. I think I'm really sensitive to um, my environment, um, the spaces that I walk into, um, where I feel safe. And I was trying to like almost like create this space for myself within my imagination. I pictured being able to read these poems to myself after I finished the work that I, there was a certain point where I spent like six months doing this. And then there was this certain point where it's like, okay, I feel like I'm done. Like I felt like I, okay, I completed this. And then all of the poems went into a box and I didn't really know what to do with them. And I, I write longhand, um, which, you know, is just how I write poems. Um, tons of spelling mistakes, like sometimes I can't even read my own handwriting. But I have to feel in contact with the page. And especially in this setting, I felt like I needed to, to be in contact, moving a pen across the page, almost as an act of translation. You know, like looking at the forms I was seeing, and I was like, well, how can I translate what I'm seeing into language? Okay, can I stop for a second? Stop you for a second because I'm now thinking of your mother's uh, artistic gifts as a watercolorist, correct? She's got a, she's yeah. a, a painter. Like, I'm seeing a corollary here between her ability to look closely at something and render it on a canvas or on a sheet of paper or whatever and paint and the work that you're doing as a poet. Like, did that ever occur to you? Oh, no, actually, <laughs> you know, that makes me really happy. Um, because, you know, my mom came to art has a way to cope with trauma in her life. And um, she practiced at it. Uh, and she would draw faces. Um, and uh, she, that was her way of communicating with herself. And then she moved on to other forms, um, oil painting, watercolors. Um, after my father died, she stopped making art for a really long time. And when I started writing these poems, I asked her if she would be willing to do some watercolors of some of the flowers. And, you know, she told me, like, botanicals are really hard. <laughs> um, it's hard to capture um, in detail a plant. Like, if, you, if you're out of practice, it could be really difficult. And so her approach was to use watercolor on tissue paper, which shocked me because that's like making things 10 times harder. I was going to say, right? Doesn't that, I feel like that would just bleed everywhere, the colors, right? Yes. So she was like really trying to um, be meticulous. And for some reason, she was like, I have to use tissue paper. And then she cut the tissue paper out and mounted it on cardstock watercolor paper. 
Um, and it struck me later that this was like really the perfect way to represent the plants and like the delicate nature of them and like the, the sort of layers and dimensions of that I was seeing. So I was excited that, um, she got on board to, to do these paintings, um, yeah, I I hope that she finds her groove again. Um, yeah, she's good. That's where. <laughs> thank you. Yeah. So you have this collection of poems. Like you've done this as as like an exercise to process trauma, um, either directly or indirectly, to find safe space like some place of peace, which I think especially, I can relate to that, especially in, in the sense of uh, the aftermath of the 2016 election. I think I was traumatized by that. I think a lot of us were. Mm-hmm. Uh, I remember quitting social media, <laughs> like reading a lot, writing a lot of letters. Like I was just like, oof, it was a lot to, it was a lot to deal with. So I get how doing something like this, like looking at plants and being in this tower on campus could be, like a lovely kind of escape or, or daily ritual to kind of find some sanity in this world. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm curious about the point at which you shifted from it being kind of this lovely, enjoyable exercise and uh, meditation practice to you feeling like you had a collection of poems to publish. Well, it's funny because there's a way in which like poets lose money (laughs) making poetry. So I couldn't afford to submit my manuscript out and I didn't even have a manuscript done. I had like 375 poems and I was like, okay, this is nuts. You know, I have to figure out how to make a manuscript and I used a deadline and the deadline was, a free submission for a small press that I really had a lot of respect for. And a friend told me, like, if you want to submit to this small press, you have to do it at midnight, as soon as that submission period opens, because so many people will be submitting. Because poets pay, like, anywhere between 35 to $65 to submit a manuscript to publishers and that can really for someone like me that could really take a chunk out of your your bank account so I gave myself a week to kind of order the manuscript to put it together I put the poems up on the wall I read them and at midnight I didn't have wi-fi but I knew where I could get Wi-Fi, and it was like across the street at this real estate office. And I, I like stayed up until midnight. And as soon as midnight struck, I like walked across the street, was sitting on the curb, um, uploading my manuscript, and I sent it. And I was like, I felt so happy. <laughs> and of course, like, you know, it, it was rejected, you know, and I was like, oh, 
I guess I'm never going to do anything <laughs> with this book. It's so funny. It's like, I like, I never realized how like hard I take rejection or how, like, like this warped idea I have of rejection. I'll be like, okay, one place that was enough. I was going to say, just good, take one swing at one swing at bat. You swung and you missed and that's it. It's over. Done. I was relieved in a way. I was relieved because I was like, okay, now I can just go into a box with all the other books that I have uh, not finished and not submitted anywhere. <laughs> and I can be happy just to have it. And the only reason the book exists is a friend of mine asked me if she could submit the manuscript to her publisher Deep Vellum, uh, Taisia Kataiskaya. Uh, her book is amazing. It's called The Nightgown. And she knew that Deep Vellum was looking for other Texas-based poets to publish. And she sent them my manuscript. And I didn't hear back, and I wasn't thinking that I would hear back. And I heard back, and they, they were like, well, we, we want to publish this. And I was like, are you sure? <laughs> really um and then it just kind of morphed from there into this into book form and to tell the truth I had a lot of demands um and deep vellum is so sweet because they met those demands one of my biggest demands was I was like, I really need this book to be printed sustainably. I need it to be on recycled paper. I need it to be like, I need it not to take from the earth if you can, like in any way, shape or form, like, please, like, this is very important to me. And they did it. Um, and I was so happy with that. They gave me so much creative control. Uh, my friend designed the cover, um, the layout artist was incredible. Um, he was like, well, can I just move this line here? Because it's not fitting. I was like, absolutely not. <laughs> Don't touch my lines. <laughs> Don't. And it was so strange because, you know, I'm, I have a hard time advocating for myself. But I realized, like, when it comes to my work, I have no problem. Like, I'll just defend it. And I'll be like, okay not in a million years is that word going to be moved. Um, so yeah, this strange aspect of myself came up. Um, but I think that <clears throat> artists have to fight for their work, you know, I can imagine, and I can imagine you being actually very effective as an advocate for your own work because you're very soft-spoken and sweet and I think that might add some power to when you put your foot down. People go, oh, I don't know. I, I, can, ima I can imagine. Whereas somebody who's maybe a little bit more, you know, boorish or hyperverbal or something, someone might hear them talking and be like, oh, yeah, 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 you know. But I think there's something powerful about somebody who's soft-spoken speaking up. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's just so funny because I, I've been around books for so long. And 
part of me doesn't feel like those romantic feeling towards them. Like I'm like, okay, yeah, it's great to be published, but it's even better to be published in a way where you're happy with the end result. It's like, I've, I have friends who are just like, Oh man, I hated my cover. I was like, well, did you ask them to do anything? And they're like, no, I was just happy to have a book out. (laughs) I don't think like that. Um, I think that it's a whole thing. And in fact, like, if it were up to me, this book would be biodegradable. Like you'd be able to throw it in your compost pile after you're done with it and it would disintegrate and there would be seeds in it and they would sprout <laughs> wildflowers. Wait, I want to say there has been a book like that. Isn't that my really? Yes. I want to say oh there was, gosh. but it was like a, you know, it was maybe like a one-off or like some sort of experimental thing. And I could be totally misremembering, but it, you know, it's one of those things that probably crossed my eyes when I was looking at a computer screen, you know, like a story about a book that you could plant um, after you finish reading it. And I mean, like technology, that's doable. If you've got biodegradable materials and recycled paper or whatever, and you somehow embed some seeds in there, plant your book. Yes, absolutely. You know, I think that I would love to see more creativity and, and publishing in terms of like how we even think about the materials <clears throat> that we use to to make books. I think that that it's been a while since there's been any sort of real innovation. I think. Well, I mean, you got the ebook, but that's maybe yeah different. Yeah, and the ebook is great. It has it serves a a great purpose. I think that. For me, like, um, I would love all mass market titles to just <laughs> stay on ebook. <laughs> <laughs> just go straight to ebook. Um, and then, you know, maybe print the special stuff. Right. But who gets to decide? <laughs> who gets to decide what the special stuff is becomes the question, right? I know. Yeah, I, I I put myself in charge uh, yeah. uh, and say, you know what? <sighs> no, I I yeah, it's 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 silly, but I do think um, do think there has to be some changes in terms of you know publishing and um, quote unquote uh, green publishing, which is kind of taking a backseat. Um, well, but I feel like that's bullshit. Why can't uh, publishers use recycled paper? It's not cheap. And it's so funny because when I was like super adamant, I was like, I need this. I need I need readers to know that this was for, for certified recycled paper because so many publishers, they might use like a certain percentage, but it's just not economically. It's it's just um Printing is expensive, and and it's also um, it goes through so many different processes. Like a book will just like it goes through so many different hands, and and those and all over the world, and it's just it's just like one of those 
structures that I would love to research and better understand because it's not, it doesn't really make any sense. It's not like books are printed locally. <laughs> like, not, you know, you don't go to the farmer's market and, and get a local book or something like that. You know, the paper comes from someplace like the, it's just like a, a very convoluted. Um, I feel like though, if like one of these big, like, you know, uh, random house or something just made a, a company wide decision to only use recycled paper, that would automatically bring the price down. Right. Because yes. you could order yes. in bulk. That's what we need is we need these big conglomerates to, take yeah. the, take the reins and then suddenly the market would magically shift and prices would come down. Yeah. And I think in the UK there's actually been a much bigger push to do that. I think a lot of publishers in the UK, I think UK Penguin in UK does uh um recycled paper. I don't know if that is applicable in the US, but um it's something I have to research. Um but it's something I'm really interested in being that I'm from the Northwest and I've seen firsthand what deforestation looks like. Where are you from? I know I, I grew up in Seattle, um, but I lived all in Washington and I remember like living in right near the border, uh, Blaine, Washington, which is a tiny little town and driving up through, uh, like, these hills and then seeing like clear cutting and actually one of the first memories I have of environmental activism is looking at the side of the landscape and someone had taken the fallen logs and this is pretty bold statement uh, and spelled out with the logs rape um, and uh, yeah I, you know, Washington is, has a huge logging community. When you think of like the typical lumberjack individual, there are tons of paper mills and stuff, but they, they're not active as much anymore. That kind of disappeared. That wasn't it. That industry just really fell apart. But I did see like some of the impact of that and what it looks like. Um, what does it look like, like? like? It looks like it looks like like someone took like a if you have short hair like say you're gonna give yourself a really terrible haircut and you take like a like a electrical razor and you just shave like one side of your head you know like <laughs> this really weird spot it's not uniform you know it's not like this but it's like a it it has a very eerie effect and you just feel this sense of vacancy you'll see like the surrounding pine trees and then you'll see this vast expense of uh, tree trunks you know like lopped off tree trunks and this if you if you see see it early on there's like an like an almost like a bright red color which is you know maybe i'm over influenced by i don't know if you ever saw that movie fern gully no <laughs> it's like
like an old Disney film. Uh, oh, right. Was, right, right. Yeah, I know. I, I think I've about, Yeah, it was basically about like this, you know, hungry deforestation happening. Uh, anyway, I don't know why I thought of that. But yeah, the impact is real in terms of like soil erosion and all this other stuff. Um, so I have, this is to say I have some conflict about what it means to make a book as someone who writes books. Um, is there a way that I can do it that, you know, doesn't take anything? <laughs> I, I don't know. It's sustainable. Makes... Your thoughts, it's the issue That's of sustainability. Yeah, sustainability, like wanting to like have a light, like a small footprint. Uh, I get and... that. People have kind of weird responses sometimes, like, to that. Like, I live in Texas, and I was, like, recently, like, actually not recently. This was, like, a year ago. I asked my landlord. I was like, hey, can we get compost? And he started laughing. <laughs> and he's like, compost? <laughs> I live in Austin. And I was like, yeah, compost, you know? Like, can we get it, like, a compost bin? And he's like, Oh no, I'd have, to, I'd have to pay for that, you know, and, and it's the things I grew up with in Seattle, like composting, everyone composts, you know, like, it's just like everyone has a compost bin, who doesn't compost? But here in Texas, it's like, composting is like a privilege. <laughs> like, if, I go, if I go a block over, uh, I live in like a really wealthy zip code. Um, I live in like a piece of shit apartment, but I live in a wealthy zip code. So if I go a block over, I'll find all of these compost bins and I'll just like pine. Look <laughs> <laughs> will get like this maternal, like womb yearning. <laughs> just, I just want to fucking compost. <laughs> and so I have all these bags of compost in my freezer right now because at night sometimes I'll be like okay well I really want to compost and I don't have compost so I'm going to see if I can drop my compost <laughs> into someone else's bin and you know people get pissed yeah if, uh, it's a weird if, thing I, I do that sometimes like if I take my dog for a walk and my dog poops and I'll like pick it up and then I'm like, is it okay if I throw this in their trash can? It's like, it, yeah. I mean, it's not like I would go up to somebody's house and like find their trash can. But if it's like out at the curb, I'm like, what does it matter to them? But then I'll sometimes, I've gotten like a dirty look before. Like, don't throw your dog shit in my trash can. And then I'm like, but you're, you're not looking in, when are you spending time inside your trash can? It's not going to bother you. <laughs> what is your, what is your issue? You're, you're being uptight. Oh. I walked past one compost bin that had like some newfangled kind of plastic lock on it. And it was like, you know, like, 
I mean, God, people are crazy. But anyway, so I'm storing it up. I have no idea where my compost is going, but... But you have some, you actively, you're actively storing compost? Yes, I have too much compost in my freezer right now. And my idea was to collect enough compost so that I would reach my own body weight. (laughs) (laughs) My God, this is a level of commitment that I I feel like I don't have much precedent for in my uh, human experience. I have I have a point to prove, man. Yeah. I mean, it's just like, why is it so hard for cities to... A lot of people in a lot of cities don't even have access to recycling. That's a huge problem. Yeah, I live in Los Angeles. I don't know any... I mean, I, I've never composted. There's, I don't think there's a composting option. Really? Yeah. Oh, man. Yeah, you know, it's, it's so funny. Um, I'm not sure how much of an effect it has, but I'm sure that, you know, if, uh, you know, it takes longer in a landfill to uh, degrade. Um, that's why composting is, in theory, a better practice. Um, it's also good for yeah. the soil, isn't it? Like you, that compost, you add it to your garden or whatever, and it's great. Tons of stuff. Um and and you know it's kind of it's like a it's kind of like a, a fun project too if you want to take it on yourself. I was trying to figure out like I don't have any green space around me at all, so I was like I don't have a place to like if I were to like figure out some method of composting. And there is a there's actually a great Japanese method of composting where you can have a, a box in your home and. I don't know like what sort of materials you need, but I, re- I read about this technique where you can compost at home and do it in a way so that you would never smell it. And you're just like mixing it and there's like some sort of essential substance. Uh, my brain's kind of breaking down, but I read this article in the New York times about this technique and that you could live in an apartment and compost and have that compost and it not smell. And I was, I was like, well, that's cool. <laughs> and you just, you just mix it around and, uh, put all your banana peels in there. And, um, but then I was like, well, where would I put the dirt? <laughs> <laughs> and so then I was like, okay, well, could I go to a park and put the dirt in the park? Like, is that illegal? Like, what happens here? Like, right, right. How, how can we work this out? How can we work this out, folks? You need like a you need like a community garden at your apartment building. I think is what you need. Yeah. I mean, that shouldn't be too cost intensive. I think your landlord should provide. Yeah, he's he's a great guy. He's like classic Texan, though. He's like. Combos. What sort of liberal hippie shit are you talking about? <laughs> I mean, and this is this is like this talk of like a you know a recycled paper book and composting yeah. and having and and also just like the interest in and ability to sit looking carefully at plants all day long. Like this is very hippie. I think would be it's so hippie. Yeah, I mean, but you're from the Pacific Northwest. Like you've got all the credentials and. 
I uh, I have a lot of affection for a lot of hippie culture. I've argued through the years that it gets short shrift. I think it's easy to caricature, but I think a lot of the mm -hmm. impulses, especially around in the environment, um, but also around things like psychedelics and, uh, you know, those would be the two big ones, like the environmental and ecological arguments that hippies were making way back in the day, the interest in psychedelics that they had way back in the day and the things that they were trying to say about their um, value and importance. All that stuff got kind of like rolled up into this kind of cartoon version of hippiedom. And now I mm -hmm. think, you know, now I think we're seeing um, all that stuff get reappraised, you know, or it's been, it's been in the process of reappraisal for a while, but it turns out they were, they were right and their instincts were good, <laughs> would be my assessment. Yeah. Um I'm a total hippie, you know, and I'm really embracing that. It's just everything from I did a yoga video and I was like the yoga instructor this morning was just YouTube and I was like she lifted her arms and she had a hairy armpits and I was like, Hell yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's my these are my people. <laughs> and I was like, This is it. This well, is it. The way that I because I feel somewhat similar, like I'm kind of like, yeah, I think I'm kind of a hippie. And I think that might just be a way for me to put a word on my instinct and desire to live at odds with mainstream cultural values. Mm -hmm. That's really what it's about for me. It's like sort of feeling like, you know, there's this big herd of humanity marching in one direction and ingesting certain things and celebrating certain things and having an aversion to a lot of it and and hearing my instincts tell me like this isn't the way for you you know mm -hmm. um and i think that i think I, I like to believe there's some wisdom in that i can't it's hard for me to look at mainstream culture and politics and just the the bulk of like look where we've gotten to like yes we've made some progress as a species but like you know the planet is basically in the process of uh, disgorging itself of us because we've abused it so badly. And the, the American experiment is on the brink still, you know, I think today we're talking on August 13th. Today's supposedly the day of Donald Trump's reinstatement, according to like a terrifyingly large subset of our population who believes this uh, garbage and who, mm -hmm. and who thinks that he's like some sort of great leader. Um, like we're in a pretty fucked up state. There's a lot to have aversion to, I guess would be my argument. Like maybe we should reconsider what we're doing, how we're working, how we're living, what we're valuing and what we, like how we relate to reality. So like, mm. I don't know, I'm kind of on your wavelength, like this whole project of sitting there looking at plants and writing poetry at least in partial response to the contemporary state of things post 2016, that's right up my alley. I'm like, okay, there's a sane human being uh, responding as best she can to this and also to the deep stuff of her life. You know, the stuff that is monolithic in a way, you know, it's the stuff that must be contended with. I don't understand how a person with an artistic bent could go through the things that you've been through and not find a way to address it in her art. It would be crazy to me to do otherwise. Um, 
and and also maybe an admirable um achievement in avoidance <laughs> but like you know i don't know just kudos for you or kudos to you for finding a way you know that made sense to you and that was palatable and tolerable to you and kind of going through that alchemic process like the the alchemy of taking bad stuff i mean as we continue on this theme of composting you know like <laughs> it's it's kind of similar though is it not i mean it's like a, it's a way mm -hmm. of taking the the difficult stuff of life and um turning it into art which is what most all of us are doing one way or another and um you know you found your way yeah i i i really believe that that that's my purpose you know i i don't think i i'm 41 like I think I would have given up a long time ago if I didn't believe on some level that I had something to say. So because the reward for making a poem is it just doesn't really have like a a big monetary right <laughs> uh return and and nor does like really looking closely at nature i taught you know course on just like writing nature poetry and i was like oh no how am i going to make this not cheesy um and i think that what i realized in teaching that class is that people really do want to talk about their experiences of what they see um even if you live in an urban landscape you are surrounded by nature. You are surrounded by it. Like you see something every day that your brain is absorbing, but you might not talk to a friend about it. And so this was a space where people would talk about like a blue heron that they had seen or a butterfly that they were like, that thing was like as, as big as a bat. Or like right now in Austin, there's this huge in my neighborhood at least, huge boom of bunny rabbits. <laughs> There's bunny rabbits everywhere. <laughs> and it's it's remarkable. And I'm like, I, what if this was like the first thing? What if it was the first thing that came up in a conversation with a friend? Not like the state of the world, but how many bunny rabbits are currently... <laughs> Or, or like people talking about work. Yes. I am so oh, fucking sick of people being like, so how's, especially guys, guys are always like, so how's the office and what's going on? You making deals? And it's just like, ugh, give me a, like, I need to uh, remove myself from this dialogue. People, yeah. People see things in nature, even in an, an urban environment that are like miraculous. I've seen... I don't know if you know what a grackle is, but it's basically a bird that's like, let's call it a Texas crow. It's not a very attractive bird, to tell you the truth. But I saw a grackle playing, like, basically soccer with this acorn with a squirrel. It. <laughs> Are you sure? Were you on anything at the time? <laughs> I was not. Sober as and, a judge. 
It was so weird. I was seeing these two animals, and they were playing. This bird and this squirrel were, I shit you not, like playing with an acorn nut. And I was like, what is happening? But it's so funny because it's not something that, you know, I think like would be the first topic of conversation. I, I was just going to say, if you break the ice with that at like a co- <laughs> at the cocktail party, people are just going to be like, whoa, <laughs> somebody hit the, somebody hit the vape pen in the parking oh, lot or whatever. Geez. But I, uh, I think too, like not only is it interesting to me to talk about nature and nat- nature experiences, cause I, I don't know how to deal with life without having some contact with nature. And I live in Los Angeles, which, mm-hmm. you know, as you say, even if you live in an urban environment, you're surrounded by it and maybe to a a particularly intense degree that is the case in Southern California because you have this massive city but you're in this basin you know like ringed by mountain ranges and the ocean and I mean it's like it's a really intense natural environment uh, even though a lot of that natural environment has been depleted by human development or whatever it's still there and what I notice when I go hiking, for example, is how easy it is to miss stuff. <laughs> like I often wonder at how many times I've missed a coyote, like standing feet from me in the bushes or something. Or if I've ever, if I've ever been tracked, like there's a mountain lion that lives in Griffith Park, which is sort of a mythical beast. Um, there's one mountain lion that crossed like the 101 and the 405 freeways and is essentially entrapped in this small section of the park, or, or I guess it's entrapped in the park. I don't know if there are sections of the park that exist on the other side of the freeway, but it's like the lion's name, I think, is P-21. That's the name that the rangers have given it. And there is one instance where it crawled into a crawl space underneath the house in Los Feliz, but otherwise, it sort of minds its business, even though wow. there's like tons and tons of people in this park every day. And I have wondered, because I've hiked up there so much, I've wondered in the past if uh, if it's ever had its eyes on me. I would almost, <laughs> I have to believe at least once, right? Yeah, it seems like the chances of an encounter like that are actually pretty high. But you don't hear about, occasionally you'll hear about somebody seeing it. Like, it'll pick up on somebody's, like, ring doorbell video, you know, at night. It'll be walking through the neighborhood. But it does, you know, these animals, especially these big cats, they are very good at hiding. And um, so I've never seen it. And I think about all the times I've missed things. And just the other day I was hiking and I was coming down and I was kind of lost in the chatter of my brain. And I wasn't looking. And then I caught myself not looking. And I was like, oh, like, look around, like, quit looking at your feet, you know, and like jabbering at yourself the whole time you're out on this supposed nature walk. And like, just as I looked up, a hawk like zoomed right in front of me across my sight line and then like soared down over this valley. And I would have totally missed it. (laughs) Yeah. You know, so like, who knows, like on a daily basis, like we're walking wherever we're going, we're driving, like, you know. I would guess we miss like 90% of the good stuff just because we're not awake. Yeah. Yeah. I, I agree with that. 
Um, and when you do catch it, it's it's incredible. Yeah, you're like, oh. <laughs> it's hard to describe too because you don't want to. It's like one of those experiences that you don't want. You're like worried if someone's gonna think you're kind of, I don't know, cheesy. Uh, from like I had that worry um, because I collect butterflies, but I collect them after they've already died. And I've been collecting them for like four years now. And I don't have a car. How many you got? I've got about 16. And this has taken a long time for me to do because they just fall out of the sky. And I'll, you know, well, not at the not This isn't a simultaneous action. But because I walk everywhere, I'll find one on the sidewalk. And some of them are just fucking incredible like huge and i, I don't I, know wait, wait 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 i have to stop you because i've never i don't think i've ever seen a dead butterfly on the ground maybe it's because of where i live but well i think like texas is a pretty incredible spot in terms of the amount of species that pass through uh this state on their journey a lot of monarch butterflies a, a lot of um a lot of really cool things and so around this time of year, I will find butterflies on the ground and, you know, take them. I've gotten into the habit of actually I take like a little brown paper bag with me whenever I'm out because I never know when I'm going to find one. And um, and I've been trying to like get in. I, I want to take photos of them and figure out their names. Who are you? <laughs> Where did you come from? I've had situations where I've found identical butterflies in almost the same spot outside of my apartment, years apart. Um, what do you do with them? How do you preserve I, them? Well, that is something that I need to get better at. Ideally, you would have a box, you know, like a container that would keep out insects but as a broke poet <laughs> i just have them out on my counter which is not a good idea by the way because i found one of my butterflies had like a look like a hole through its wing and i was like oh man i don't know if it was a cockroach <laughs> i was like who is eating my butterflies <laughs> and you know it's just i have to find a way so next there's another stimulus check the first thing i'm <laughs> first thing i'm getting is a butterfly box because i love these guys and um they just fall out of the sky and i collect them i sometimes find money too so it pays and you collect that as well <laughs> I found five dollars the other day. I walk like I get try to get my ten thousand steps in. Uh -huh. I'm obsessed. Yeah, I'm kind of that way. Obsessed with step tracking, and um, so I'm either finding butterflies or money. <laughs> Both are great, right? It's a nice balance. <laughs> yeah. Well, I have so enjoyed uh, talking with you and enjoyed reading your collection. And um, 
admire you for like this kind of project because it is, I think at least in the context of modern American culture in left field, you know, like to sit there and to look at nature and to write poetry about it and to be quiet and meditative and attentive to this sort of stuff and to really have deep respect for your environment and um, for the plants and animals that we share our space with. Again, it can be like easy to make a cartoon out of that. And kudos to you for ignoring that um, because we need more people, I think, who understand that interconnectivity and um, respect it and pay homage to it. Thanks, Brad. I mean, I hope if, if you see the cougar and you come eye to eye, there's you're like, hey, buddy. Yeah. Well, <laughs> hopefully it won't be like you look like dinner. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The, like the one time the cougar is like, you know what? I've been a little too nice to y'all. <laughs> Um, well, listen, are, and may I ask, are you working on any other uh, writing projects or are you just enjoying the publication of this one? Yeah, I'm working on a memoir about my experience with uh, mental illness. And yeah, I, I'm also a freelance writer, so I'm always working on something. Well, I'm excited. Having read especially the, uh, the afterword in your poetry collection, um, I'm very excited to read that memoir because... Um, you've got a lot, you've got quite a story to tell, I think. Um, so I'll be keeping an eye out for it. Best of luck with it. Thank you so much. All right, there we have it. That is my conversation with Julie Poole, author of the poetry collection, Bright Specimen, available now from Deep Vellum. You can find Julie on the internet at juliepoolejp.com. That's pool with an E juliepooljp.com Once again, the collection is called Bright Specimen. Go get your copy right now. The Other People podcast is offered freely. Did you know that? Every single episode, more than 700 and counting, all available to you, the listener, free of charge. It's a listener-supported show. If you like this program, support this program if you can. You can do that at patreon.com slash other PPL pod. That's Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash other PPL pod. There are different tiers, different levels of support for as little as $1 a month. You can support this show. A buck a month, just drop a dollar in the hat every month. And, uh, you know, if you have the means, you can go up the scale. When you go up the scale, you get stuff. T-shirt, tote bag, coffee mug, sticker, book club subscription i will write you a postcard i will wish you a happy birthday all that stuff patreon.com slash other ppl pod also if you want to help the show out give it a little boost you can rate it and review it over at apple podcasts give it a nice rating write a review that helps other people find the show it helps the show algorithmically if you have something to say to me, the email address for the show is letters at otherppl.com. Don't forget, too, that this podcast has its own official app, the, the uh, Other People with Brad Listy app. It, too, is free. Go get the app. The Other People podcast now has a YouTube channel. Are you aware of this? Every single episode of this show is available 
on the Other People YouTube channel. Search for it by name, Other PPL with Brad Listy over at YouTube, and subscribe. Hit the subscribe button. It's free. All right, a new episode coming up on Wednesday. Get ready. Get ready. Get in the ready position. (laughs) 